what drove me was really this quest to solve a really big problem. So I didn't say I'm an innovator. I said, this is a problem that needs to be solved. And what are the things that I need to do? Who are the people I need to get to work with me to help solve this problem? You're hearing from Dr. Donna Brzezinski, who trained as a neonatologist at Yale and Harvard Medical Schools before she founded Little Sparrows Technologies and the Billy Hut, the first ever line of portable, high-intensity jaundice therapy devices. In episode 11 of CamTech Chats, Dr. Brzezinski underscores the importance of commercializing solutions that improve health in high, low, and middle-income countries. She also shares stories of challenges women face sourcing funding for medtech, and she explains how diversity and skill sets helps to accelerate the Billy Hut towards patient impact. I, um, I attended medical school at Yale and then actually stayed on at Yale for my uh, residency in pediatrics. Uh, following that, I came over to Boston and did um, neonatology fellowship training at Harvard Medical School and had every intention of um, of being an academic neonatologist. I had been a Howard Hughes uh, Medical Institute's um, medical school, a medical student fellow for a year um, at the National Institutes of Health and had been very involved in molecular biology and uh, recombinant DNA work. Um, but, you know, life can be a bit unpredictable. And, um, you know, what ended up happening is that I... Um, had my first child and I ended up actually leaving academics for a while um, and was working as a private practice pediatrician for about nine years while still doing some work in the NICU. And then ultimately came back to the NICU, um, completed uh, the remainder of my fellowship training and then um, became a you know neonatologist doing inpatient work. Um, but it was during that time doing inpatient neonatology work and drawing from my experience, um, having been on the outpatient end of things, that uh, I started to make some connections about pathways to care, and um, in particular um, with the issues of jaundice, um, how difficult it is to actually get babies to the treatment they need, not only in the U.S., but but in, specifically in, in global health, um, where with this condition, more than 100,000 babies die every year because they lack the treatment needed for it. What were some of the types of preventable cases that you saw that motivated you to start treating jaundice in under-resourced settings? The inspiration for this really came from a specific clinical experience where um, I was taking care of a set of jaundice twins in a hospital here in the U.S., and um, the hospital didn't have enough phototherapy devices to meet the demand at that time. And it was just a matter of, um, you know, sort of the ebbs and flows of the number of patients in the hospital versus the number of equipment that the hospital, you know, stocks. So we did manage here in the U.S., you know, obviously we can, we can figure out how to get another device rather quickly, and that's what we did. And we were able to treat the twins together at the same hospital as opposed to having to transfer one of them to another hospital. But, you know, that, that sparred my my thinking about um, what happens in lower resource areas where a couple of phone calls can't solve the problem. And so it was really that disparity, the disparity of how we can so, you know, so organize our treatments around patients in the U.S. Um, 
And even though it may be, you know, somewhat difficult, it's achievable. Um, the option for achievable is not even there in a lot of areas in global health. Um, so that's actually what started this. And, you know, I felt that um, to really give care to those babies, there needed to be a technology that could actually reach them. Uh, the huge part of the problem with jaundice in global health, there's several problems. First is recognizing the disease and getting the patient to treatment. But finally, even if the patient arrives at a hospital, oftentimes the devices are either A, not there, or B, um, they don't function well. So a, a core technology that's robust in those areas was a, was a huge gap. And that's the gap that I felt like I could um, have a shot at, uh, at filling. Well, Donna, you just mentioned that there's a need for technology to fill that gap. And you co-founded Little Sparrows Technologies and ideated the Billy Hut. Could you talk to um, our listeners, for those who don't know what the Billy Hut is, so they uh, can understand what this technology is and how it's helping to improve health outcomes for neonates? Sure. So the Billy Hut is a first-of-its-kind phototherapy device that is not only ultra-portable, um, but it can also run for a prolonged time on a battery. And then it can collapse from its assembled state to flat packing so that it's, um, it's much easier to distribute. And the weight of the Billy Hut is less than 10 pounds. So when you look at the constraints for getting a technology to remote areas, they fall into a couple of categories. You know, first of all, it, you know, they need to be um, certainly safe and effective. And, you know, we met those, um, we met those constraints with, by virtue of our design and our materials. But you also have to be able to get it there and you have to be able to operate it and it has to be used, uh, be able to be used in areas where people might not be as highly trained. And so a lot of thought went into the actual delivery aspect of the device as well as the usability aspect of the device. So it works as well, if not better, than the devices that we currently use in a US neonatal ICU, um, but it can do so in a much smaller package and in a much more intuitive, um, intuitive usability. Well, this also reminds me of the augmented infant resuscitator that uh, Chris Olson and Dada Santorino just um, helped to commercialize with Philips. Yes. And it has a lot of potential to be implemented in both low resource settings like in Uganda, but also in high income countries like at Mass General Hospital. And it seems as though the Billy Hut is a similar device. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how important it is to find solutions that might serve neonates in both low-income countries, but also improve uh, the current technologies that we have in Boston, for example? Yeah, I think that's an, an outstanding observation. Um, I think for so long, we've been um, under this idea that um, technologies that are reaching low-resource areas of the world are um, are basically what we have now, but are donated, and that has not panned out very well because they're not often operable there because they're not designed for that use case or that you know they if they are designed for a, a lower resource use case then there would be no value add in a more developed area and um, and I think that that is very narrow thinking around this um, basically what we're doing what little sparrows is doing and what Chris has done and what other groups have done is recognize the core problems that 
are surrounding the health issue that they're trying to solve. And oftentimes those core problems exist everywhere. They may take on, they may take on different manifestations, but they exist everywhere. So for example, in the US, um, we don't have too much of a problem delivering phototherapy to babies in terms of having devices and having hospitals to administer phototherapy. But what we do have is a lot of consequences of that. Um, phototherapy is an incredibly expensive treatment for what it actually does. A readmission for a baby in the US costs $5,000. Um, and you're also separating a mom and a baby usually at the end of the first week of life when they've just gotten home from the birth admission. So these things are you know, expensive both cost-wise to the healthcare system and emotionally expensive to families. In global health, it's the same issue. It's, it's getting the treatment near the baby. So um, except it takes on a much more extreme um, consequence because the babies don't get the care at all. So here, um, you know, we're spending a lot of effort to move babies to the treatment. And what we really should be, do is moving, should be doing is moving the treatment to the babies. And um, that's where we have a value add for a device like the Billy Hot in the United States. We can, we can actually give hospital intensity treatment in the home environment or in the postpartum room as opposed to admitting the babies to the NICU. And then the same idea of keeping the mom and the baby together during treatment, we can move phototherapy downstream in global health locations instead of trying to relocate babies who are sometimes 50 or 100 miles away from a hospital to get phototherapy treatment. So the core problems are the same. It's just that the, that the consequences are different. And you know, I think in the, to put it under the big umbrella, what we really are creating are these legacy leaps. We're, we're, when we implement technologies in global health, we're, we're kind of leaping over the pathway that has evolved slowly over time um, in a more developed country, because we really don't need to go through all of those little intermediary steps. We've, you know, now we have, for example, with phototherapy, we're able to, um, to, to bring something downstream that can deliver the same efficacy as, as a hospital in the, in the U.S., but we didn't have to go through all of those intermediary steps of, you know, stringing, um, you know, electrical wires to remote areas and, you know, all of the infrastructural things that had to be built to achieve that. We can just leap over those things create a device that's ultra-portable, and then look back to a developed country and say, you know, this has utility here because of those same abilities, this, this high, highly portable ability and the ability to keep moms and babies together. You're a Yale and Harvard-trained neonatologist. And as a clinician, how did you start to acquire these skills in business and engineering and design to start accelerating this innovation forward? I, I certainly did not have any background in um, starting a company, um, managing the business aspects of a company. I'm not an engineer and I'm not a professional designer. Um, but what I did bring to the table was 20 plus years of clinical experience, understanding the interface of the um, provider patient um, relationship and how, how to deliver care to a patient. Um, and the all other thing I did was I recognized what I couldn't do. And that's where I started to reach out to resources that had expertise in that. We were very fortunate to be part of the Mass Challenge Accelerator program as a startup company. And we learned a lot about business operations there. Um, I have a network of people that I know professionally who 
were able to make some introductions and connections to us. And then finally, we were involved in um, the Saving Lives at Birth um, grant, grant Challenge grant. We got a seed grant from them. But with that came um, you know, a network of people who were really motivated to see the project through and to um, help us on a path to success. So I don't think you need to have all of that knowledge going in. I'm not saying that it wouldn't help. Um, but, you know, there are resources out there if you're, you know, very proactive and you keep your vision in front of you that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, your, your job is to get this solution to the people that need it. Your team now includes engineers, a data management specialist, a hematologist, oncologist, and you as a neonatologist with, as you said, 20 years of clinical experience. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what benefits you've seen from having a team with such diverse skill sets who are co-creating a solution to address challenges like jaundice in, in low resource settings. You know, whenever you have a solution to a very big problem, uh, or you're creating a solution to a very big problem, there are lots of aspects to getting that solution off the ground that go well beyond simply your your idea. Um, and the sort of the you know, the mechanics of it all, like how do you actually build a device so that it is safe, so that it can pass the regulatory standards needed to get into certain countries. All of these things are, that, that's not in my wheelhouse, but there are engineers who do that very well. Um, how do you actually organize some of the data that's coming in in a way that can tell your story better and can show your impact? Again, that's not something that I have expertise in, but there are people who can do those things. All of those pieces of the puzzle are incredibly important in um, both bringing your project from the idea phase to the prototype phase and then moving it from the prototype phase into something that can be commercialized. And I think all too often people get very excited at that first part where, you know, they may have thought of this great idea and even built an early phase prototype and they, you know, really leap forward in their thinking to when it can be in the field. And the reality is there is a lot of, you know, very regimented, um, sometimes tiresome actions <laughs> that need to happen in that space in between to actually make sure that what you have is going to be um, able to do what you want it to do and be deliverable to the market that you're trying to get it in. CamTech is launching an initiative called She Solves, and its focus is to help close the gender gap in the med tech and startup ecosystem to really create a better space that's welcoming to women and girls in med tech, particularly in, in under-resourced settings like India and Uganda, where we've been working since 2012. And it would be fantastic to hear what some of the successes and the challenges that you've faced as a woman working in med tech. And if you haven't had any particular challenges, um, maybe what stories you might have heard from other women who are innovating that have been barriers for them in this space. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'd like to say is I'm, I'm thrilled that that's happening um, and that there's awareness for this. And in, particularly in my field, in uh, maternal fetal medicine and newborn health, it, to me, it's silly to, to not involve women in solutions for that since women and babies are um, pretty much at the heart of what we're trying to do. And so if you really want to have 
a well-rounded discussion about how to solve problems, you, you actually need to involve the people who, who have the problem and who have a very intimate understanding of the problem. Um, I, I have to say, I haven't personally felt um, like there's been any barriers based on my gender with this particular project, um, but I'm also coming at it from, um, you know, a, as I said before, as a from a 20 year um, life experience in, in this field in taking care of mothers and babies. I have heard stories from some of my colleagues who are uh, female founders um, about the difficulty it is not with the innovation end of their business, but in the funding end of their business. And that um, the funding world is still not equal for male and female innovators. And, and it, it defies logic to me because if you actually look at the statistics for companies that are successful, teams that have female CEOs or um, a high level of female representation at the C-suite level overall are more successful. They have a harder time raising money, but they're more successful. So if I could, you know, wave my magic wand and, and change the ecosystem, I think one of the things that I would do is have people realize that, um, you know, the insights of female founders and female um, teams with men and women on them have a lot to offer, have a much better view of like the 360 challenges that um, face uh, not just in, in creating something like making an innovation, but also bringing it to market. And that that should not be a discriminatory thing that a company is led by women. It should be viewed as a strength of that company. Um, that that would to me would be the the biggest change. Well, I imagine you know twenty years ago when you were first starting to practice neonatology at Yale and Harvard, you may not have thought that you would be an innovator and an entrepreneur working in this space. What advice do you have for people who don't think of themselves as innovators, but they still have a solution to a challenge worth solving? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at the heart of it, we're all innovators every day, right? We're, we all are confronted with situations that can be unexpected or to, that need to be solved in a way that is not our normal way of solving them. I mean, that's just part of, of, of being a human being. Um, and if you take that spirit, that idea that, um, you know, you're really not so much an innovator as a problem solver and, and kind of rethink along those lines, um, it, it takes away some of the um, intimidation that that label can can put on you. Like some people feel like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to be able to create anything. And I certainly did not think I would be in this, um, you know, in this particular uh, career path right now, 10 or 20 years ago. Donna, thank you so much. I think this has been a really helpful conversation for innovators in Camtex Network to learn about your pivot from clinical medicine to you know, engineering and design and business with your launch of Little Sparrows Technologies and the Billy Hut. And uh, I wanna thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. It was my pleasure, thank you.